Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, Mr. and Mrs. North America and all the ships at sea. This is Philip Terzian, literary editor of the Weekly Standard, and this is my weekly podcast about the books and arts section of the Weekly Standard. And this week, we are looking at the February 16th, 2015 issue. And the first piece is a piece I'm particularly happy with. Um, it's a review of a book entitled Thomas Cromwell, The Untold Story of Henry VIII's Most Faithful Servant. Uh, the author of the book is Tracy Borman. It's published by Atlantic Monthly Press. The reviewer is J.J. Scarisbrick, who is a British scholar, um, author of probably the authoritative biography of Henry VIII, published in the late 1960s, still very active, and a uh, particularly lucid and graceful uh, stylist in English prose. So whether or not you're interested in Thomas Cromwell or not, just reading J.J. Scarisbrick on English history is always a, a pleasure. Thomas Cromwell, um, who was a distant relation to, but not to be confused with, Oliver Cromwell, and of course he lived a, a century before Oliver Cromwell, was a um, uh, very high-ranking courtier of Henry VIII, who was very instrumental, actually came to power really at the point uh, after 1530 when Henry had definitively broken with the Roman Catholic Church and divorced Catherine of Aragon and um, separated England from Rome and had married Anne Boleyn. Um, he remained <clears throat> the most powerful uh, non-royal in England for some years thereafter, finally fell from grace, as Henry's courtiers tended to do a dozen years ago, and actually paid with his life. But uh, during those 12 years, he was really the the one who, who uh, transformed England into a Protestant nation. He was the one who uh, really affected, he was the administrator, one might say, of uh, the uh, closing of the monasteries and whatnot. And the reorganization of, of Britain uh, under the Tudor monarchy. Uh, he's had a kind of revival of interest in recent times uh, for two reasons. One is that in recent years there's been a series of popular novels, popular mostly in England, um, by a, a sort of minor novelist named Hilary Mantel, who has, who has written a series of historical novels with Thomas Cromwell in the center, and there have been some theatrical presentations of these novels and whatnot. Um, but Cromwell's historic reputation has also undergone some change. He was for a long time regarded as something of a malevolent figure in English history, but then uh, a man called G.R. Elton, who taught at Cambridge, who was sort of the dean of Tudor story studies in the mid-20th century, uh, revived his reputation, uh, claiming that Cromwell was sort of the inventor of the modern administrative state, that he was a man of consummate intelligence and, and rigor, and that England, uh, as a as a a sort of modern renaissance and modern power owed very much to Thomas Cromwell, part of which is probably true, although J.J. Um, Scarisbrick would dispute that to some degree and also tends to think um, Cromwell's 
influence, certainly on Henry and on English life, was probably more negative than positive. But it's it's all discussed in a very interesting way, and I'm, I'm sure you will enjoy his essay. That is followed by a review by James Bowman of a curious book um, by an author named Francis Larson called Severed, A History of Heads Lost and Heads Found, uh, Decapitation as a... Uh, as a public gesture and an active state um, has made a tragic reappearance very recently uh, with the rise of the Islamic State in Syria and <clears throat> excuse me but but the the symbolic act of decapitation and beheading um, of course goes back to antiquity and this is a book largely about um, the history of beheading. Um, from antiquity up until one might say um, the uh, the dawn of of Isis, it sort of stops a little short of the modern, the contemporary world. But we learn about uh, it, the symbolic uh, uh, purpose of decapitation in history, the the use of decapitation, and of course in French uh, law, criminal law, up until uh, very modern times, the eve of World War Two, I guess. And um, and and the collecting of skulls by soldiers in foreign lands and all sorts of different manifestations. It's kind of a oddball um, topic, one might say, but a, a curiously interesting and to some degree revealing thread throughout human history, which James Bowman discusses for us. That is followed by a review by Joseph Leconte of a book entitled Joy for the World, How Christianity Lost Its Cultural Influence and Can Begin Rebuilding It by Greg Forster. And this is a book, the thesis of which is that evangelicals kind of uh, came out of the woodwork politically in the last generation um, and um, certainly exerted some influence politically, but in the long run... Um, one might say that their their mission to reinvent American public life and to have a really profound influence on American civil life um, ended essentially in failure. And so the author's thesis is what influence can Christians, especially evangelicals, uh, how can they influence the culture? Is is there any way for them to influence? the culture, um, or are they destined to to retreat as they did, I guess, after the Scopes trial in 1925? Are they destined to retreat back into into their own resources and stay out of the, the public square? So it's an interesting discussion, and Joseph Leconte, who's a very lucid and intelligent writer on these subjects, uh, lays it out in a very interesting and, and uh, both historical and prescriptive way. That is followed by a, a couple of um, slightly quirky essays, if I may say so. One is um, by Jonathan Leaf, who's a playwright in New York, and it's an appreciation of Somerset Maugham's novel of Human Bondage, which was published exactly a century ago, and which, um, as Leaf discusses, um, has always been a very popular novel, certainly a certainly a bestseller. Um, um, a novel that is always, <clears throat> excuse me, always listed on those slightly ridiculous lists of the hundred greatest novels of the twentieth century or of in the English language or whatever, of human bondage is always in there somewhere, but it's never quite gotten 
as mom has not never quite gotten the the critical uh, respect that Jonathan Leaf thinks it deserves. Some of you may know the movie from the 30s, the movie version from the 30s with Betty Davis and Leslie Howard. I I took the liberty of including including a still from that uh, in the essay. That is then followed by an essay by Daniel Ross Goodman, who writes for us on a on a wide variety of topics, but it's on tennis. Um, he is himself a tennis player, and the one might say the culture of at least professional tennis has been on a kind of downward pro- trajectory in the last several decades, and the latest. Uh, emblem of decline, I guess, is that um, there's a movement in the, whatever it is, the U.S. Tennis Federation, um, to allow more uh, crowd noise during matches. Um, tennis is one of those sports where the the behavior of the crowd is still to some degree regulated by tradition, and under certain circumstances, is a kind of a kind of respectful hush. Um, well, just as players are now freely grunting and groaning on the uh, on the court um, there's now a proposal to allow the the um, uh, the galleries to participate in all that and, and join in the fun and uh, turn it into more of the atmosphere of a European football match or uh, an American baseball game or something like that which which our author um, uh, does not welcome and makes I think a very persuasive case. That is followed by a very uh, delightful brief essay by Thomas Vinciguerra, another regular contributor of ours, who usually writes on literature, but he's writing actually now about the current um, mapping and remapping of our solar system. For those of us uh, baby boomers, I guess, the the solar system, when we were growing up, was a kind of fixed star, as it were. There were... Um, uh, you know, there was the sun and then a certain number of uh, planets, and uh, some of which had moons revolving around them, some of which did not. And, of course, in the last 30 or 40 years, all that has been upended a bit. Uh, Pluto has now been uh, downgraded. Um, uh, they now think that there are planetary objects beyond what we used to think of as the range of the solar system, um, um, Neptune and Uranus and the others, Jupiter. Uh, we keep learning new things about what revolves around them, and and so he's left with a kind of um, the author is left with a kind of weary uncertainty about exactly what um, uh, uh, what the solar system means. Um, uh, we we keep trying to understand it uh, fully, but. Um, science and the sophistication of science keeps frustrating our efforts in that direction. So that is the Books and Arts section of the Weekly Standard for the issue of February 16th. I thank you very much for taking the time to listen to this little preview. I hope you will enjoy reading it, and I very much look forward to meeting with you again next week. Thank you.